Recording in progress. Everybody, welcome back to the Noel Castler podcast, episode eighty-one. My fingers are cold, but I broke out the uh, octave mandolin for you. I've played this before on the show. One of my favorites. It's fall. I figured it's a good time for that sort of sound. I appreciate all the comments from last week's show. It's been heavy times we're living through, but we're doing it together. And I always appreciate you guys listening and all your support. So thank you very much means a lot to me. Let's get into it, right? We got a lot going on. We got a hurricane bearing down on Florida. So wishing uh, everybody down there be safe and uh, listen to, uh, you know, what you're told, sort of. <laughs> if, De- if DeSantis tells you what to do, you know, it's funny. I just saw a statement where he was telling everybody to listen to authorities and do what they say. And he said the opposite when the CDC and the United States government and Dr. Fauci and NIH told people to wear masks and get vaccinated. He said he knew better for political expediency, which is obviously a theme in the GOP, right? They don't, they don't really care about you or your safety. They care about their political power. And he's going to use that opportunity to look like a leader. And he's not a leader. He's a punk. And we'll get into more of that. But if you happen to live there, it's serious stuff. I myself was supposed to be down there this week and I canceled it. I was supposed to be in Miami. The hurricane's not going to Miami, but you know what? When there's an emergency in a state, you don't go there and add more problems, right? Because you're just another body in the way as far as I see it. So everybody ride out the storm safe. All my surfer friends catch a few waves for me, and uh, let's let's be on the other side of this, but let's learn the lessons, right? The, the thing they're facing down there is the storm surge. It's already affecting parts of Miami, the storm drains, It could be catastrophic in the Tampa Bay area because the sea levels have already risen due to climate change, as we all know, or as most of us know, and it's bearing down on us. You know, it's on us now, as are so much of the problems that we've sort of thought about in theory in our lifetimes. You know, it's like it's go time, right? Italy just elected a fascist leader. Maloney, I think, is that's how you say her name, right? She just got elected the other day. She's sort of a descendant, you know, of Mussolini. Rachel Maddow did a great piece last night on her. You know, she's somebody who, since she was 15 years old, was espousing fascism, which has always sort of been a bit of a cult of personality, right? What fascist leaders do is never remembered by the people who admire them. It's the feelings that they gave the people. Right. That's the real danger with fascism is how it makes certain people feel. And because that's what people remember. Right. There's a famous Maya Angelou quote, like people don't remember what you do. They remember how you made them feel in a good way. That can be a guiding principle. And it's certainly always been one of mine as a performer and a human being. And I think it was Maya who said that I'm going to be embarrassed if it's not. You guys can correct me. I also met Maya Angelou once with Bill Clinton backstage at Carnegie Hall 
different story, I'll tell you sometime, but it was like being in the presence of the Dalai Lama, who, you know, who I've also met. I'm not trying to name drop, but there's certain people that have polished their souls to the point that they radiate goodness. It comes out of their eyes. And you don't even have to spend a lifetime doing good deeds. That Malala, the, the young woman from uh, Pakistan, I, I got the same vibes. I met her once, you know. Um, but anyway, so people remember how you make them feel. And that, that is sort of a skill that can be used for good or evil, you know. And somebody like Trump, as dumb as he is, he does have that effect on people and he knows it, you know. And it started out as this clownish kind of thing in the 80s. Come to my casinos. We're going to have Tyson fighting on Saturday night. It's going to be great. You know, it was this carnival barker BS, but it took a turn, you know, on a public stage in 2016 with this sort of malevolent leader that people worship, that people want to be around, that they want to brand themselves, you know, by and identify with the fascism and the hate and the xenophobia that he's peddling, you know, while he's picking your pockets. And Mussolini is a great example of that. That guy was there to serve himself. He was like, screw you, peasants, you know, I'm the boss. And, and you know, the government in Rome acquiesced to them. You know, they had a king before that you know, a sort of a figurehead, but they were like, you know, Mussolini's fascists were like, we're coming to Rome and we're taking over. And the Italians were like, here, just take it. Right. And we all know how it worked out. It didn't work out well for Mussolini, but there was enough cult-like people, you know, already enamored of what he'd accomplished that they dug him up and, you know, they, you know, the thing, they were passing his body around and his leg fell off. Like, I didn't even know any of that until Rachel's show. I mean, <laughs> it was gruesome. I am not ordering the prosciutto or the asabuco next time I'm in Milan. <laughs> That's a joke. But uh, anyway, the point is they turned him into a figurehead of fascism and people come from all over the world to visit his tomb you know, where they have an eternal flame and they do the Nazi salute, the fascist salute, which Trump got people to do in Ohio at his last MAGA rally because the QAnon faction is now splintered off to even more extreme kind of subgroups that are infiltrating the MAGA people. And the MAGA people, even though, you know, they're not exactly moral, they're trying to tamp this down. Trump had another rally last weekend in North Carolina, and the people tried to do the same thing, stick their fingers in the air in the fascist salute. When the music started playing, the MAGA theme, or the you know QAnon theme, and Trump's own security went through the crowd and tried to get people to put their hands down because they knew it was bad optics. Which is just insane, right? It's just, it, it's an insane moment in our in our. United States political history and in world history, and it has to be remarked upon. You know, this achievement in Italy, and not achievement like in a good way, but this sort of like rise again of openly fascist, Mussolini-supporting, attractive blonde woman who was mentored, you know, by Steve Bannon, who spent a ton of time in Italy before they chased him out. You may forget he was trying to build a camp for young men on a hill. He bought an old monastery outside Rome, and he wanted to use it as like an international fascist training center. And thankfully, the Italians weren't having it. But he was an early mentor and supporter of, of you know, of this new prime minister in Italy, you know, and they've had 20 years of Berlusconi. They've already had a crook for 20 years and so many of the young people don't feel represented 
represented that they didn't show up at the polls, which is a crime, you know, but it's an understandable one. And they also made it very difficult to vote, right? You couldn't, you couldn't vote where you were. You had to go back to your hometown and they, they made it very tricky, which is what the GOP tries to do. You know, besides gerrymandering, you have voter suppression. You have these ways to push down the vote. And that's what the GOP is going in on. You know, there's a report out this week how they're going to have all these extreme GOP folks targeting the polling centers in the, in the midterms six weeks from now. Six weeks from today, as a matter of fact. It's Tuesday afternoon, right? So there's going to be people outside screaming at you and telling you Trump is God and all this crazy stuff. And that's going to keep some people away. That's what they're hoping for, intimidation. It's what they did in the Jim Crow South to African-American voters, right? They, they try to make it not worth your while to stand up for your rights. And there's nothing more important than standing up for your rights right now and, you know, and exercising your freedom to vote because it may be the last time you get to do it. You know, not in this election, but you put Trump on the ballot in 2024 or Ron DeSantis and they cheat the way they did in 2016 and tried to do in 2020, and we're in trouble. You know, we're going to take a nosedive as a, as, a, as a beacon of freedom that we already have, right? We already have a bloody, bloody nose, right? But we could, you know, we could end up, you know, comatose in terms of freedom because this is organized stuff, okay? It's not by accident that Italy has a fascist leader. It just happened in Sweden. Poland, you know, is, is going extreme. Hungary has an openly dictator, you know, an open dictatorship. That guy doesn't even make any bones about it. He's like, yeah, I hate Jews. I hate homosexuals, which he calls them. You know, I hate gay and lesbians. I hate everybody. And that's what, that's what they're trying to do in Italy. Gay people are now afraid. People who have children are afraid. Gay couples that have adopted kids are worried because there's talk of enacting a law where they'd, you know, ban the rights, you know, for same-sex couples to have children, which is absolutely bonkers, you know? You you know, I got, my mom's a lesbian. There's nothing wrong with having same-sex parents, you know? In many ways, it's a benefit. It's life. It's normal, right? But these extremists are trying to make things you know, that they know are emotional hot button issues, you know, and in white, you know, a, a Catholic, you know, nation that already skews towards anti-immigrant talk. It's ripe for that sort of thing. And it's always been attacking the others. That's what Hitler did. You know, that's why they go after the arts. That's why they go after this stuff, because they're preying upon your ignorance. They're preying upon your misconceptions. I get that it may sound weird to somebody, you know, that they have two moms or two dads because it's not yet normal because we haven't evolved enough of a world in a, as a world, you know, that that, that that isn't just normal to people. When you grow up in it and around it, it is normal. Everybody's the same. They're just trying to put food on the table and keep the lights on and go on vacation and educate their children, you know, and have some fun and enjoy life and enjoy the seasons. That's our birthright. You know, we're supposed to get along. It feels better when you get along and you love each other. As I say every week, diversity is our strength. It's like we're throwing out the diamonds and keeping the gravel. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? People are pulling out a, you know, a pocket full of rocks and offering it up 
and saying, this is your future. This is what I'm going to give you as a leader. And guys are like, sign me up because it's hate. and It's all they know. And they can pick up those rocks and throw them through somebody else's window. And it makes them feel good. But it doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't nourish your soul. It doesn't help us as a people or a world. Right? And you have treasures in diversity. You know, that opens up other facets that you haven't even begun to examine. You don't even know how good you could feel. You know, it's like Christmas morning. You have all these gifts under a tree that you're just afraid to unwrap because you've never seen the, the wrapping paper like that before and it's confusing you. You know, I don't know if that metaphor makes sense to you, but that's essentially what you're doing. It's like going out, you know, say you went out to dinner with your friends and you went to like an Indian restaurant. You never had Indian food before. And, and you're like, no, nah, I, I don't eat that stuff. And all five of your friends are sitting there chowing down on samosas and, you know, biryani and curry and all this great stuff. And you're like, nope, I'm not having any of it. You're missing out on a meal. You know, you're missing out on spices and cultures and colors. Papa Dum is good. You know, garlic naan is good, right? And there's no bad food in the world except for some of the crap that we sell here, you know, in fast food places because it's not good for you, right? But if it's nutritious and it's from a culture, it's a good thing. You know, and I use food as a metaphor because it's the best thing about traveling. When I would travel with bands, you know, I hadn't been around the world until I got the opportunities to do that. And I'd be like in Singapore or something and there'd be, you know, a food market across from my hotel, there was a food market, you know, and this is, you know, South Asia, there's like every kind of stand you could imagine. And none of that food looked like anything I'd ever seen before, right? Mud crabs and noodles and all this, you know, it's just, you know, just crazy stuff where you're like, what is this? But people are sitting around eating it and enjoying it. So, you know, it's good. Just jump in. And I did. And it was good. <laughs> you know, like I would always say what, whatever he's having, you know, the, the dude in front of me who looked like, you know, he worked hard for the five bucks he just spent on lunch. You know, he wasn't going to waste it on a dish that wasn't good. So I would always, you know, pick what they were having. I learned that from Anthony Bourdain. You know, he goes, go, go where the, the, the workmen eat lunch. You know, I learned that in Japan. I went to a place near our hotel it was a similar thing it was all these shops and like one place would have noodles you know one place would have you know those little uh dumplings those japanese gyoza right and one place would have sushi or something they wouldn't have like a hundred things on the menu they'd be like we make one thing and we have three tables if you don't like it go to the next place and i found a place that made gyoza that was so good I couldn't believe it. And I went back to the, you know, fancy hotel we're staying in that had restaurants. And I told Stephen Stills, I was like, dude, I just ate the best thing I've ever had in my life. And he's like, what? I'm like, gyoza, man. He goes, oh, I love gyoza. Take me now. You know, and we went there and just stuffed ourselves on gyoza. You know, this grizzled old rock star and myself, you know, in Japan, not speaking the language, but loving the culture and enriching ourselves. You know, it's a big world. Jump in. Enjoy it. Don't let fear and people that are trying to manipulate you for their, your, you know, their own gain ruin the party. We're only here for, you know, the blink of an eye when all is said and done. Life is very short. Each day is a gift and a blessing that we're supposed to enjoy or serve other people with. 
you know, I should temper that, you know, you, it's your birthright to, to be happy. It's like George Harrison said, what are we doing? What on earth are we doing here? Certainly not to live in pain and fear. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing, but you get the idea, right? You know, there's a lot of emotions and things we feel that we shouldn't really be feeling, you know, that are sort of being forced on us by, by circumstances of capitalism and society that have gone amok, right? It's like instincts run amok, and the people in charge want to keep the status quo. They want to keep burning fossil fuels. They want to keep selling oil. They want to keep people in the dark. They want to keep you focusing on your fantasy football league instead of the election. You know, in six weeks, that could take away your daughter's or your wife's you know, right to an abortion, cataclysmic things, things that if they happen, it takes a hundred years to turn them around and you have chapters full of horror stories unleashed by that kind of dominance. And that's what the GOP and the fascists do. They try to dominate people in a masculine, toxic way that appeals to weak, you know, terrified men and women. You know, normally I would just say men because it's more poetic, but the women are leading the charge on this ugliness too, right? Maloney's a woman in Italy. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a woman here, apparently. <laughs> you know, she's half caveman. But, uh, you know, she's technically a woman, I think. I'm not a sex guru like she had an affair with in her, in her strip mall gym. The ta tantric sex guru, you can look it up if you don't know what I'm talking about. She was cheating on her husband with all these dudes at the local gym. And one of them was a self proclaimed tantric sex guru, right? The good Christian woman who chased her opponent out, you know, of North Georgia in the middle of the night, thanks to QAnon. And then she went unopposed into Congress, seemed like the craziest beast we'd ever seen, and has now risen to basically the number two spot in the GOP, right? You got McConnell, who's obviously the most powerful GOP senator. You got Kevin McCarthy, who's a moron. You know, he, he's the male equivalent of a spokesmodel. <laughs> you know, he goes whichever way the wind blows. But the real figurehead, the one with the heat on her, is Marjorie Taylor Greene, as insane as that sounds, right? And if you don't want a Congress with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert being the most vocal sort of leadership, then you got to get out and vote. I mean, I don't know if you guys remember um, Biden's State of the Union speech this year. But those two jackals interrupted it. They started heckling Biden and they stood up out of their chairs and started screaming stuff. You know, that's straight out of like, you know, beer hall putched kind of German fascism, you know, not respecting the authority that exists, demonizing the other and disrupting things so you can bully your way into power. And that's what these people are doing. I just saw Marjorie Taylor Greene put out an ad today where you could win the opportunity to, opportunity to go hog hunting with her in Georgia. Hog hunting from a helicopter with an AR-15. Okay, that's not hunting, that's murdering an innocent animal. And she's got a whole video of her doing it and then smiling with the dead creature. It's insane. You know, it would make any sentient being's skin crawl to witness something like that. You know, forget even your views on hunting. You know, I had a pet pig, and it was a wonderful 
creature you know pigs are awesome i've also eaten bacon i'm i'm not gonna lie but you don't go hunting feral wild hogs for sport and smile about it the depravity of something like that and to do it as a campaign commercial you know as a raffle to win the opportunity to be brutal with her and own the libs right because that's what it's all about it's about owning the libs it's about offending people who are sensitive right because they don't want people exploring their own empathy and their own consciousness, right? Because it's hard to control people who've done all that. People who've done that are going to say, no, I don't hate these Mexican guys. They're not doing anything to me. I don't want to mess with a bunch of Venezuelans that have just courageously walked through seven countries to come here and better themselves to escape Marxist di dictatorships, right? We're supposed to be against that. I don't want to demonize those people. So the GOP doesn't want you doing that. They want to dehumanize them like the Germans did to the Jewish people, you know, before World War II even started, you know, and people would laugh and they would go along with it. We're in the middle of the Rosh Hashanah right now. It's the second day of Rosh Hashanah, you know. You learn from other cultures. I spent the last two days listening to the rabbi I listen to every year, you know, at, at a synagogue. I listen to it virtually because I can learn from other religions. It's inspirational. This happens to be a you know very prestigious synagogue in New York City, so like they got the best rabbi. This guy's great. <laughs> I look forward to it every year. He's funny and smart and insightful, and it gives me an understanding of somebody else's beliefs and somebody else's history and aspirations, and that's what we all need, but that's what they don't want you to develop. They don't want you having empathy for the other. And in the case of the U.S., they want you to buy this sort of Christo-fascist, you know, only dumbass white men should decide things, <laughs> you know, and everybody else is evil or wrong. So we're going to attack public schools. You know, DeSantis gave a speech last week where he tried to say that the founding fathers were against slavery and the beginning of abolitionism, right? The abolitionist movement started with the Founding Fathers, according to Ron DeSantis. So, okay, let's unpack that for a minute. First of all, it's complete bullshit. Ron DeSantis went to Harvard and studied Yale. He knows it's bullshit, okay? There was, you know, anti-slavery forces in the free world, you know, or Western European world, or however you want to say it, before the American Revolution in 1776. And reality was they were freaked out a few years later by the Haitian revolution where enslaved people rose up against the french you know who were their captors and took over and became the first independent you know free state in the caribbean that was you know run by formerly enslaved people and we have basically punished them ever since and made them pay reparations which is insane and i don't have time to get into all that right now but do a deep dive on the history of haiti sometime and you'll see how it really works, okay? So these guys, the Founding Fathers, weren't anti-slavery, you know, with the exception of, you know, Ben Franklin. Some of these guys were pretty woke for their day, but Thomas Jefferson was a sadist, man. He slept with his slaves. Look up what he fed them, what their rations were for a month to survive on, you know, after they worked his plantations. And you'll see the truth, right? But Ron DeSantis wants to whitewash the truth no pun intended right he wants to lie and have textbooks lie and teach already sort of uneducated 
people in a public school system. You know, they're already not getting, you know, the, the best that you could get out of an education, and they should, right? But unless you can go to private school in this country, you're not really getting it, you know, you're not, you're not getting like, you're not getting the filet mignon of teaching. Do you know what I'm saying? You're getting some beef jerky and, and whatever, you know, and that's just the way it is. If you're smart, you can, the books are there and you can learn, but we should have, you know, a better standard for our children is the point I'm trying to make. Education shouldn't be commensurate with money and in whatever means your family comes from. It should be the birthright of anyone born here. That's how you achieve excellent, you, excellence. You bring a people up, you know, and teachers are heroes, especially the ones that work in our public education system. And they've had some of the hardest years of anybody in these last several years and going forward. They have to contend with school shootings. They have to contend with things that we couldn't even imagine when we were younger in school age, okay? So Ron DeSantis is literally having textbooks made up that don't tell the truth, you know, and that treat the founding fathers like they were some deities or something, you know. They came up with some good ideas. Nothing, you know, is going to take away from that. Teaching the truth does not, you know, take away from what democracy and freedom have given the world. The American experiment, experiment in many ways is a good thing. I know I harsh on it because I want to be truthful. I care about this country deeply and I care about the people in it and I care about this country continuing to live to its highest aspirations, which it never really has. We've had moments of greatness and we've given some great things to the world, but in many ways we've been, you know, co-opted by ignorance, you know, where, where a tiny part of the population can ruin the whole gig for everybody. And, you know, and that's what we just saw in Italy, right? That's what happened in Germany. That's what's happening in Hungary, you know, and the right is embracing that. CPAC has made Orban a hero. The Maloney, I hope I got her name right, <laughs> or I'm going to get a thousand comments, you know, that the Italian, the new blonde Italian prime minister chick to not be offensive, spoke at CPAC here in the U.S. And Maddow played her clip last night, and it sounded, it was a fascist speech. It was full of anger. It was full of anti-Semitism, which she said as soon as she took power yesterday. She was like, we're not going to let certain people that control financial, you know, instruments decide our future or something. I'm paraphrasing, but we all know what that, you know, what that dog whistle is about. And, and Europeans, you know, they eat that up the dumb ones, the mean ones. They're very anti-Semitic, you know, all throughout a lot of countries over there. And, and I might get comments on that, but in my experience, that's true. And history kind of bears it out too. So it's not something that you want to encourage in a people, but it's now seen, seen as a commodity, a political commodity that folks can exploit for their own power. And once they get into power, they turn on the people. It becomes about serving them. Think about Trump, right? He didn't have a platform at his last convention. In 2020, there was no platform. It was just going to be about praising Trump. You know, normally a leader comes into office and they're like, hey, we're going to, you know, Obama had health care. President Obama had health care. Biden is going after student loan debt. He's going after hunger, you know, child poverty which is something that it's especially close to my heart. And he had a, you know, an event at the White House today with his new initiative. 
trying to feed children, trying to make it a better world. Trump had none of that. It was just like, praise me in 2020. Because in 2016, he sort of had this bullshit, you know, platform. Well, I'm going to build a wall and I'm going to cut down immigration, you know, and then I'm going to do infrastructure. And he got into office, immediately did the Muslim ban. Everybody freaked out. It was a disaster because it was written by a 35-year-old Nazi from Santa Monica named Stephen Miller. So they didn't give anybody a heads up, including the TSA. And everyone had to fly in from around the world when he announced this thing like two days before the Super Bowl, if you remember, and people were like stuck in airports and freaking out and they didn't know if their citizenship was going to be revoked. Just a nightmare. And he did that, right? And realized like, well, they kind of got slapped down on that. So that didn't work. So then he started caging people at the border because the wall was really just a grift so he could get contractors to give him kickbacks and was never really going to work, right? So then they just got all like, you know, Dr. Mengele on immigrants. Remember, they were, they were tracking women's, like, periods and doing all kinds of sick things. They're still missing children. They were separating children from their parents. You don't do that, right? You find a family that's coming here as migrants, as refugees. You make sure they're all together. They have a safe place to sleep, and they're well-fed, you know, and their kid feels somewhat secure about his tenuous situation in the world. That's how you respond with a human heart to any child in suffering, no matter what color they are. You know? I don't mean to get emotional again, but picking on children as a nation, that's what we're doing. That's what the policy is of the GOP. That's what Trump's policy was. Torture people. Be an asshole. Cruelty is the point. And what happened? It became immensely popular, right? And it got his base all loving him and riled up. And then he just started stuffing his pockets. He just started going to his golf course every weekend and overcharging the Secret Service. You know, he, you remember in Scotland at his golf course, he made all the military flights get redirected so they'd have to spend the night at his golf course, you know, which isn't in the normal budget. For the Air Force, you know, the, the, the planes that do resupply routes that had never gone there. He's now making them land in Scotland, you know, to pump up his properties. It all became about grifting. You know, part of his morning routine, they called it executive time, right? Because he couldn't get to the Oval Office until noon. Noon. Think of that. you got the most important job in the world, and you're not showing up in the office till noon, and you live upstairs, <laughs> right? Like, that's insane. You know, you get a job with Goldman Sachs, you're there at 7 in the morning, you're sitting at your desk trying to make a buck. This guy's the leader of the free world, and he can't be bothered to go downstairs till noon. Because it takes him an hour to do his hair, he's got to, you know, watch Fox News, he's got to jerk off, you know, snort some Adderall, and most importantly, he's got to check in with his businesses, right? That's what he was doing in the morning. He was checking in with his sons, he was checking in, you know, with Alan Garten and Alan Weisselberg and asking, you know, what's the deal? What, what company needs some heat this week? Oh, the property in Potomac isn't doing that well. Well, I'll go golfing there this week. How about Mar-a-Lago? What are the figures? Well, Doral is down. Well, I'll try to get the G8 to go to, you know, Doral, right? He was, he was strategizing how he was going to pilfer the United States while we were paying his rent. Think about that. While he had the most important job in the world, he was just trying to enrich himself. There was no policy. There was no agenda. 
There was no platform. There was no legacy of what he was going to leave behind. It was about what could he take. Because he's an addict. He can only think about himself. You know, and that's well beyond addiction. You know, I'm somebody who suffers from addiction. You know, I'm in recovery, as you guys know. Like, self-centered fear and selfishness is, you know, it's the root of all evils. But his stuff is way beyond that. He's a narcissistic freak like we've never seen before. As I said last week, you know, I think history will come to bear that, that he is the biggest criminal in American history. I think when you really tally up the damage done, you know, the ultimately million lives lost during COVID, the grifting, the destabilization of the world, right? He had five meetings with Putin. They're all a secret. He took the translator's notes on each one, including Helsinki, where he got up and took her notes, then walked out on the world stage and disparaged our U.S. intelligence agencies and took Putin's word about interfering in our election, which everyone knew was BS, right? The other meetings were like he'd be at a dinner in South America and Putin would just go over to the table, you know, at a G8 summit. Putin would just go over to the table and start rapping with him. Trump didn't have State Department aides. It was just him and Melania. So we don't know what was discussed. And then he spoke on the phone like another 16 times. <clears throat> Pardon me. Some of that... <laughs> Sorry, guys. I think that's the first time I've... <laughs> ever coughed on the show. I shouldn't drink coffee. Some of that we're probably able to piece together, you know, the phone calls and stuff. That's why these meetups in person became so crucial because he knew he'd have a few minutes to talk and nobody knows what was said. And Putin would have played him, you know, like a fiddle. He's been playing him like a fiddle since before 2015, you know, Trump and his kids went over there. His kids went there to try to do the Trump Moscow, you know, pageant. They did like the Miss Universe there. Ivanka sat in Putin's chair behind his desk at the Kremlin, you know, at the behest, you know, of Felix Sater, who was a Russian mobster, Michael Cohn's best buddy from Bay Ridge, you know, the Bay, Bay Rock and all these like really unscrupulous real estate deals that Trump and his kids did. That was all Felix Sater. That was all working in concert with the Russian mob. And Putin has, has him dead to rights on all that, right? So if Putin says jump, Trump's going to jump. And think about all the things that went Putin's way during his term, right? We pulled out of Syria. We left the Kurds hanging. So another dictator that I didn't even mention before, Erdogan, could go in and slaughter the people that fought alongside us, you know, in the name of protecting against terrorism. We had the you know, Kurds helping us for 15 years, 17 years, and we just left them out to, to die because, you know, Putin was, you know, had Trump in his back pocket and told Trump to do it. So without any notice, Trump pulled our troops out there, out of there. We left whole bases to the Russian troops. They, one day, it was an airstrip that we controlled, built and paid for. The next night, Russian soldiers were sleeping on our bunks with our equipment still there, Right. That was a Trump move, right? Trump tried to have the freaking Taliban come to Camp David at one point, right? So all these strategic moves can, can be seen as sort of foreshadowing for Trump, you know, and, and his sort of corrupt empire acquiescing to Putin. And what happened? You know, I think Putin was probably, you know, counting on Trump getting reelected, Trump obviously had plan A, B, and C, which included attacking the Capitol and trying to choke out his Secret Service driver so he could go there and cheer on the troops. 
to hang Mike Pence, which would have been a Mussolini move, which Trump would have had no problem doing. Okay, there's a lot of dudes who have been whacked in his orbit. He ain't got, he, he's not losing any sleep over that. But what happens ultimately? Putin invades Ukraine. The same guy that Trump tried to shake down when he said, hey, Putin's bearing down on me. We need some support here. You need to invite me to the White House, you know, help legitimize my presidency. And Trump goes, yeah, well, I need you to do me a favor first. And then left him out to dry. You know, and then Zelensky gets, you know, attacked by Putin. The whole GOP is like, well, it's not our problem. What do I care about Ukraine anyway, as J.D. Vance says, right? Putin still has Trump on a leash because Trump has still refused, even in his recent rallies, to say anything's wrong with Putin invading Ukraine. He just says he wouldn't have done it on my watch. Yeah, he would have. He would have done whatever he wanted. And where are we at now? By not investigating that, by not going harder on Jared Kushner, you know, who, who set up back channels with the Kremlin while Trump was still president-elect, as I said just last week, or the other week, you know, right? We didn't invest any, uh, investigate any of that, and now where we're at. Russia's locked down. Where are we at? You know, Russia, the men are fleeing. 18 to 60, they're fleeing. They're crawling out of that country because they're being used as cannon fodder. You know, and when's the 30th? Is that tomorrow? Putin's going to make an announcement whether he, you know, cracks down on the entire country with martial law. You know, he's already banned people from flying out of there. Right? He's making people go be cannon fodder on the front lines of Ukraine, you know, in Ukraine, where they're going to get slaughtered. These are untrained you know, kids and middle-aged men out there with rusty Kalishnikovs, you know, that are going to meet one of the fiercest fighting forces on this planet because they're protecting their own and they've been, you know, the subject of war crimes for the better part of a year. So they're pissed off and angry. And Zelensky, ever the diplomat, is holding out an olive branch and saying, defect, come here and surrender and we won't send you back to Russia. We'll make sure, you know, you're okay. He's given them a chance. And most of those folks should be wise to take it. As I said, again, as I said last week, you know, don't go die for Putin's ego. But I'm getting to the point here. The point is Joe Cirincione, who wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post, he's the founder of Plowshares, which is about like sort of denuclearization. It's trying to dismantle nuclear weapons. I got to meet him before when I think I told you this, and when I worked for Jackson Brown and he gave me a keychain that was made from like the missile that carried a nuclear warhead that had been decommissioned. You know, it's been his life work. Life's work is trying to educate people about the dangers, you know, of nuclear escalation. So he wrote an incredible op-ed in the Washington Post that yesterday, it's one of the most sobering things I've ever read. You should check it out if you can. But what he talked about was, you know, the various options that Putin has and how the U.S. will react. And option one was he'll do like sort of a flyover thing where he'll he'll launch a nuclear warhead, but it'll go over Ukraine into the Black Sea or something. It won't directly hit a target. It'll be more of a message, which, by the way, people had urged our government to do instead of dropping the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we said, no, 
You know, we want to we want to make a bigger message than that. And we drop those bombs and we're still the only people to have used nuclear weapons in that way. So we didn't take that option. Putin ain't going to take that option, right? Because it's not mean enough. It doesn't like intimidate his own people, which he's also very scared of at this point. Right. So option number number two would be like a 15 kiloton nuclear warhead attached to a missile and and. I think Nagasaki or Hiroshima was like 10 kiloton, right? So it would be a substantial, horrific thing to happen, but it's like number two. It's like the second option that's kind of mild. The third would be a 100 to, you know, 500 ton kiloton thing that would take out a whole city and the leadership of Ukraine and, you know, have radiation drifting all over Europe and stuff. You know, and then fourth is, you know, cataclysmic, you know, basically World War Three. Like none of these options are good. Right. And to be reading them in The Washington Post, as a matter of fact, kind of one of these things is very likely to occur very soon. You know, and, and we're going to have to respond and we have our responses in place, some of which are taking out, you know, the whole leadership you know, the people that, not Putin, but taken out, you know, the, the, where the missiles are launched from and all that kind of stuff, which we can apparently react in a non-nuclear way and be just as effective, you know. But my point here is that we've, we've backed this madman, not into a corner, but he, he's so bad logistically, you know, and he obviously got information with, from Trump. It's no accident that all the oligarchs are falling out of windows, you know, and dying of heart attacks and committing suicide every week. So I think he got a lot of intel from Trump and was able to use it. And, and I think a lot of that intel probably influenced his decision to go into Ukraine. But, it, you know, it's a shit show for him now. Pardon my French. And he knows it. And he's just trying to buy time through the winter, which is why he's mobilized his own citizens to go, you know, hold a place on the battlefield and catch a bullet for the boss until he can figure out, you know, if, if Europe and other nations are, are, are going to be tired of paying more for oil, you know, and, and they'll kind of relax some of the sanctions on him. So he's using human beings for economic leverage to get out of a war that he prosecuted. And the American president gave him a green light for four years. You know, that's why all this stuff is connected. And there's still a lot of money at play. It's what I was saying earlier about fascism marching across Europe. You know, it's no coincidence that Steve Bannon was the advisor in Italy and that Orban is embraced and that Tucker Carlson is doing shows in Hungary. He went there and met Orban. These guys praise him because the dark money behind it, the Koch brothers and the industries that benefit from this sort of kleptocracy and having a people either too brutalized or too brainwashed to stand up against it benefits the status quo and allows them to continue essentially raping the planet for their own greed. And you need, you need dictators to do that. You need strong men that everyone fears and they turn on their neighbors because they're trying to get in good with the boss. And that's what we see happening in this country, right? We see nothing but corrupt guys across the GOP. Ken Paxton fled his house yesterday with his wife driving because somebody was trying to serve him a subpoena for his ban on schools helping trans children. You know, and look what they're doing with abortion rights in Texas, right? 
And that guy's been under indictment for six years for insider trading, I believe, for benefiting from his office. And somebody serves him a subpoena. He hops in his truck and rides away, flees like a coward. You know, the same Texan guy, you know, with his governor that pretend like they're tough guy cowboys. They always run from trouble, right? Just like they stand outside in a Valde where children are getting slaughtered, right? Because it's a myth. They're not really tough. They're placeholders for autocracy, you know? They're like pawns on a chessboard, and they get to grift themselves, and that's the motivation. As I said last week, talking about Ryan Zinke, you know? That's Trump. Trump saw that. He said, I get a bunch of corrupt people around me, let them do whatever they want, as long as they give the boss a taste, you know? And they'll help me establish a government that's completely corrupt, and beholden to me, that serves me and my needs, not people and fair representation. You know, and what's the group that he picked on for that? White, suburban, and rural, red state, you know, identifying as Christian, MAGA Americans, right? Because even the American thing is BS. This isn't your country. We stole it from somebody else, you know, 300 years ago. Okay, we're, we're, we're all immigrants here, you know, but these self-identified, you're the real patriots, you know, morons that listen to Fox News every night, that listen to Tucker Carlson, who went and spoke at Sonny Barger's memorial this weekend. Sonny Barger was the head, first head of the Oakland Hells Angels. And I, full disclosure, I know guys in the Oakland Hells Angels I know a good dude who actually organized that memorial and he's not the type to be like pro Tucker Carlson at all. But Tucker wants to, you know, wants to run for president. He doesn't announce it yet, but he wants to court that tough guy iconography as Trump always did. I would tell you guys how Trump would have Hell's Angels at the after parties. You know, the first time I saw Chuck Zito and the Hell's Angels, I was like, what? You know, this isn't Altamont. You know, this isn't like a CSN concert. What are these guys doing here? You know, and I took a picture of Chuck Zito and he called me over and basically was like, next time ask before you take a picture. <laughs> Meaning like if we weren't here at this TV thing, you'd be already getting your ass stomped by me. Right. But my point is that's the iconography. That's what Trump courted. And that's what the rest of them are courting. Right. Anybody who runs for the GOP now has to sort of inveigle themselves with the bullshit toxic masculinity of jack booted thugs right because that's what's selling now in conservative circles it's not empathy it's not compassion you know it's the environment doesn't exist big business is king don't you pay attention just go to church and, and you know be mean to the gay people next to you or the immigrants you know and we'll reward you and everybody gets their little fiefdoms that's how you really corrupt a nation. And the GOP's like, sign me up. They won't hold him accountable at any turn, right? They won't even let him investigate January 6th. They did everything they could to obfuscate, a, a, you know, a rational investigation of attacking the U.S. Capitol and trying to assassinate the vice president of the United States. And they're like, yeah, whatever. And what did they do? You know, they kicked Liz Cheney out of the party. Adam Kinzinger, 
You know, neither of those people have a future. Neither of them are going to be on the ballot next year, this year, in six weeks, right? Because they just wanted to, like, pay attention to what was going on and investigate it. And the GOP is like, that's none of your business. This is our world now. We serve Trump. Get in line or get out. And that should horrify you folks. You know, I'm not trying to bum you out. I'm just trying to, like, you know, bring the truth as best as I can, as best as I see it. And we're in tough times, man. It is on. You know, but the sun's shining. You can see it coming through the window. You know, the, the seasons are going to change. Right? The world's going to be here. The catastrophes are going to come on us one after another now. You know, the hurricanes, the storms, it's going to be a long, cold winter. All of these energy companies that fought change for so long, you know, in my lifetime, starting with James Watt under Reagan, who people forget about, he was like an anti-environmentalist. He lasted a couple years, 81 to 83. He was such a train wreck. They had to get rid of him, you know, shades of Trump getting rid of Zinke, right? Or getting rid of, you know, Scott Pruitt. They bring in these guys that are just completely beholden to industry and have nothing but, you know, malevolence towards environmentalism because it gets in the way of making a buck. And here we are. You know, these storms are a direct link from policies of that era. You know, a lot of what we're dealing with now is leftover from Reagan. You know, and, and in some ways, you know, Nixon before him, but Nixon set up the EPA, right? If I remember correctly. But Carter was the one who came in with this real progressivism, you know, in the 70s. And that freaked out the dark money. That freaked out the Koch brothers, right? That freaked out the John Birchers and the Federalist Societies. And all these guys started getting funded by industries and billionaires that didn't want their way of life getting messed with. And now that was 40 years ago. And those guys have a lot of money. And they have enough money to throw elections thanks to Mitch McConnell and Citizens United. And now they have a stacked Supreme Court. And now they have fascism in America. You know, I couldn't even tell you how many candidates are on the ballot in November in the dozens that are denying that Biden is a le legit president, that are saying it wasn't a fair election. That's insane. Anybody knows it was fair. Right. Biden didn't cheat. Trump had not a leg to stand on, you know, just like his buddy Mussolini. <laughs> but uh, do you know what I mean? Like anybody with a brain knows that's not true. And that's literally what you have to say to get elected. You know, and some of them are such outliers like Doug Mastriano. He doesn't have a chance. Right. So now he's all in. He said today he would have women arrested for murder if they had an abortion. You know, they're just trying to outdo each other with the dumbassery, right? Because it worked. Trump just pointed down. The dumber he got, the more he just bloviated and bragged about himself, the deeper his cult went into it and the richer he got, you know? The bigger the con game. A lot of it is sort of what you see on social media. It's so easy, you know, to just reach out and send me a buck and watch my podcast. Ted Cruz has like three podcasts. Marjorie Taylor Greene has podcasts. All these guys do is fly around and podcast and say, send me money. Alex Jones was making a fortune. I've never made a dime off my podcast. There's no way to send me money. You know, I don't want your money. You know, and I'm certainly if I was a U.S. senator or congressman, I wouldn't be asking for your money. You know, 
I do sell t-shirts, but don't, please. Because if you buy one, then I have to go to the post office and send it to you. <laughs> but thank you for the people who have purchased one. But you get my point. I might do a sub stack, and that's going to be a subscription. Just because there's other people that are in my orbit that are working for free. But um, my point is, you know, it, it facts don't matter anymore. And nobody seems called to service. They seem called to serve themselves. You know, I couldn't imagine owning, like starting a podcast when I was in Congress, you know, and I'm sure people on the left are doing it too, you know, and in some ways it can be an effective way to communicate, but the right wing is just every second I see, you know, all these dumbasses, Ben Shapiro and all these guys. And part of the problem is they say outrageous stuff and they know the clips are going to get passed around sort of woke lefty Twitter. I'm saying that in quotes, but you know what I mean? My timeline has more conservatives in it than it does progressives. It's all the latest outrage, you know, and I comment on that stuff all day long as a comedian. And then it becomes like the snake eating its tail, right? It's just this circle and there's no such thing as bad press on the right. They're, you're just helping their brand. You're just making them more famous and fame is the commodity in these conservative circles. That's why they have rallies every weekend, every weekend. You know, Matt Gates spoke at one of them. Matt Gates, who planted a story to the Washington Post saying he wasn't under investigation. Nobody can find the source. Nobody who knows the law says there's any merit to what he said, but he said it, and it'll sow a seed of doubt. Just like Bill Barr, as I discussed last week, immediately went on Fox News and said, yeah, Letitia James, Attorney General Letitia James, New York AG, is overreaching by going after the children, right? Trump's children. They were officers. You know, they're 40 years old. Don Jr. is 44. You know, he's spending his 40s snorting blow, but he's still an adult. <laughs> you know, and it shows you how that family is that nobody cares. You know, that nobody even steps in and says, hey, big bro, maybe don't do the videos every night. You know, making us look bad. Anyway, you get my point. It's another rant. You know, it's another week. It's another avalanche of just crazy sort of almost like once in a lifetime stories. You know, I've followed politics my whole life pretty, pretty closely ever since I was a kid, you know, living with a single mom outside of D.C. We would get the Washington Post and I'd come home, a latchkey kid, didn't really have after school activities. I'd go play with my friends, hide and seek or, you know, playing ball out on the little field between apartments. And I'd read the Washington Post. You know, I just started reading about this stuff because I could see how it affected my life. It wasn't some obscure, hard to discern thing. It was like, oh, Reagan hates poor people and now my friends are going to go hungry. I get it. <laughs> you know, I see what politics are. And, and I think, you know, there was a lot of years where you sort of could stand back. You know, I wasn't, certainly wasn't as deeply involved probably during Obama's time because I felt so competent, you know, and confident in what he was doing. But obviously, you know, I still very much paid attention. And, you know, it's degenerated. And it's also why I always give a plug for the arts, you know, and I tell these stories of, of behind-the-scenes stuff because, you know, no matter how bad things get out there, the humanity that we share and the celebration of life and the hope and the inspiration that we can give each other when we come together, you know, that's something you don't need to be rich or poor to have, right? I mean, you need to buy a ticket, but 
you get my point, right? There's, you, you, you can get in touch with something that's worth more than gold, you know, through your own soul, and you can affect another person. And that's how you really make change in this world. And that's what we need to encourage. You know, it's, it's no accident that Reagan defunded the arts, right? That the humanities were sort of looked down upon. You know, that greed is good became a mantra. And, and who spoke out against that stuff, right? It was Bruce Springsteen, you know? It was Prince. Prince was a seminal artist in my life. Purple Rain came out when I was in the summer of seventh grade, you know? And back then, music still seemed very sort of segregated in a way, right? You had, you know... AOR rock radio that would be playing like Van Halen and Boston and that kind of stuff, right? And then you had, you know, urban radio that was playing Cool and the Gang and all this great stuff. And the two weren't really mixing. And then, you know, with the exception of Michael Jackson, it was like, you know, that stuff was so great. Everybody was listening to it. And that was a rock band, right? It was Michael Jackson and essentially Toto with Quincy Jones and Eddie Van Halen on Beat It. And, you know, that was a, a that that reached across and began a healing process, right? Everybody had the Michael Jackson coat and was doing the, the moonwalk and all that, you know. And I, I worked for Michael Jackson a couple times later on. It was a little freaky. We're not getting into that right now. <laughs> but uh, I'll tell you the story sometime if I haven't already. But uh, my point is, I remember sitting in a dark movie theater when, when Purple Rain came out. And I went to the first showing on opening weekend with my dad who came to visit me. And this is in Greenbelt, Maryland, the Greenbelt Plaza, if anybody's near there or listening. And uh, in a lot of my escape in that time, because my mom was descending into, you know, into her demons and stuff. And it was right before the end when I had to go live with my grandparents and my mom had to go away and deal with her stuff, the movie theater became an escape, right? I would go to the movie theater and sit in that dark theater and you could, they had like dollar Wednesdays where you could get a ticket for a buck. You know, and I was a pretty lonely kid. I was always popular in school, but this was a weird circumstance. I was on like my seventh move, you know, by seventh grade or something. So there wasn't a lot of, I had a few years in elementary school where there was like three years of stability and then it was moving again. So I would go into the movie theater, you know, and I would sort of dream there in the dark, you know, and think of the, the hope and possibility that my life, you know, could bring. You know, I wanted to be in the arts. I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be a musician, you know. So I'm sitting there, you know, and, and I remember going to a Denny's beforehand with my dad and eating breakfast. And we looked at the Washington Post that had this big write-up on Prince and how good this is, you know. And I knew 1999 and Little Red Corvette. That was a crossover hit. They did play that on DC radio. But, uh, and by the way, this is when Howard Stern was a local DJ and, uh, or maybe he'd already gone to New York. When I moved to New York, he was up in New York, but I, I listened to him on DC 101 when he got fired. I was, I had a school day that day when he famously called in about the, you know, flight 90 crash. But anyway, I'm sitting there reading, we're reading this wash, you know, this Washington post article about purple rain. And it talked about, you know, Hendrix, and, and, and Prince was sort of like the next coming of Hendrix and this rock god. And we're like, what? You know, it's like urban synthesizer kind of dance music. Like, I don't get it, you know? And you're sitting there in the dark and Purple Rain, you know, comes on. And Let's Go Crazy is like the first number pretty quickly into the film. And he hops up on those uh, 
speaker stack or whatever and plays that guitar solo that is sending chills up my spine right now. Just thinking about it, you know, and thinking of that magic and fire coming out of that dude's fingers, you know, and that inspiration and beauty and excellence and talent, you know, in this like little androgynous looking dude, you know, who looked like he was from a different universe, who completely did not give an F about what you thought about him. He was going to let his spirit and his talent shine. And he was about to show you how it was going to go down. And he did, boy, like nobody ever did. I've been around a lot of people in my life. I've never seen somebody as talented as Prince. And I, I've been around, you know, I did the Super Bowl with Prince, you know. So there you go. That's a good example. I didn't know the point I was getting to, but as a little kid, I'm just blown away, you know, or as a teenager. And uh, as I said, by Christmas of the year, I was moving up with my grandparents. And for Christmas, I got like his back catalog, you know, controversy in 1999. I would just sit in my room and listen to Prince. And, uh, you know, it made me, made me have hope. It made me realize the arts and, and finding what you're good at would open your heart. And Prince had this band that was like two white girls, a white dude, you know, it was just, it was, it was, it was America as you wanted it to be. Same with Bruce, you know, he's kissing Clarence Clemens on stage. Like the arts always show us what we can be, you know, they appeal to our higher angels, you know, and, and, and in many ways they, they can transform a life and a world. And Prince did that, you know, and I wouldn't have thought sitting there, you know, with a mom that was about to go to prison, you know, for her being deep in her addictions. And then me having to work my way out of that and dealing with my own pain and my own issues and, and somehow managing to have a career that led me as a sober, you know, young adult. This would have been out like 17 years ago to doing the Super Bowl. And I, I remember showing up there in Miami and, oh, I'm closing it with Miami. So this is appropriate, right? So I remember showing up and they're like, no, you're in charge of the marching band, you know. And Prince had gotten the Florida AMM. It's called FAMU. It's like a Florida Agricultural School, F-A-M-U. And they have one of the greatest marching bands in the country. And if you're not hip to marching bands, especially in HBCUs, get hip to it. Because that's some seriously powerful stuff, you know. And these guys are like clockwork and excellent musicians. And they work in, in concert with each other in a way that's phenomenal, right? So they're like, Noel, you're in charge of the, the marching band. That's going to be your assignment. You know, Prince has written a, he's going to have them join him for Purple Rain. And Prince had written the chart. He had called up the MD two weeks earlier and worked out the chart, which is the musical arrangement, with the marching band. He wasn't just like, hey, listen to the album and play the chorus. He, he tailored it. He used his genius to make them shine more and gave them this chart. And we ran it for two days in a parking lot and these dudes had it down. <laughs> you know, you're, you're thinking that. You're a 21-year-old college student, you know, in uh, Florida and you're about to play with Prince on the field at the Super Bowl, right? Dreams do come true. Inspiration is shared. You know, and the, and the costume department, a friend of mine who lives in Miami, designed all their costumes. Well, they have their uniforms, but like designed this neon piping that, that went around. So in the dark, they were going to be like their silhouettes would be in all these like LED 
lights, right? And they had these little battery packs. And it was like really all super cool. And we did the rehearsals and we had the Saturday off before the game. And then Sunday morning, it started raining hard, raining sideways. And Prince's people told the producers, Ricky Kirshner and dudes I've worked with forever, like, hey, just run the tape. Because on Thursday night, we do a like rehearsal, full dress rehearsal with all the bells and whistles. And I guess Prince's camp was like, hey, run the tape. And they're like, we can't run the tape. Like it was sunny when we shot that. Like it's raining. People will know. And they're like, is he going to be safe? You know, and they're like, yeah, he's not getting electrocuted. It's all fine on stage. And then Prince goes, well, make it rain harder then. Yeah. <laughs> make it rain harder then. And my man came out. I'm going to cry thinking about that. And just brought it, man. Just brought it. And everybody knew it. Everybody was watching at home, who was watching in the audience. It was like greatness. And I remember standing on the field, you know, not far away as he's playing his crazy looking guitar. And uh, I remember thinking, being that little kid sitting in a movie theater, you know, scared and confused about what life might have in store for me and being inspired by this great man doing something that was speaking to me in a, in a great way for the benefit of us all, right? Like rock stars get rich and yeah, yeah, there's cash and prizes, but you know, Prince stayed in Minneapolis, man. He was a normal dude. There's nothing normal about Prince, but you know what I mean? He wasn't like, you know, he, he was a musician. He was a musician's musician at heart, you know? He, he was a showman and he was talented and charismatic, but he was a musician. That dude worked all day and all night. He was always playing music. So he's doing this excellent thing. I'm standing on this field, like tearing up, and you don't want to be the guy crying at the football game. <laughs> you know what I mean? And the FMU guys, FAMU guys are just killing it, and it's raining so hard it's sideways that the field got really slippery, and their LED packs all started shorting out. <laughs> you know, they're just like going dark, and they're sliding, and the dude's got the, you know, trombone, and he's falling on his ass, and like, it was chaos and pandemonium and beautiful, and working together, and a magical moment, you know? I, I wish everybody could be in a similar circumstance, and you don't have to be in the middle of it. It's not about ego. It's about being, bearing witness to something that involves community, that is a lot of people bringing their lights together and shine, right? That's, that's where you're really cooking with fuel, right? That's why we watch football. It's not one dude out there. It's a whole team of guys. Yeah, the quarterback gets the glory when they win, and the guy, you know, catches the ball and runs for the touchdown. You can tell I know a lot about football, right? That, you know, that's all well and good, but it's the dudes on the defensive and offensive lines that are just punishing their bodies so the other guy you know, might get a chance at glory, but our team can win, you know? And then the guy who's going back to the factory on Monday morning can feel good about his hometown and his Sunday and see how when we work together, we can achieve the impossible, right? That's what we need to do in six weeks. That's what we need to do at the ballot box. You need to grab a friend. You need to make sure they vote. You need to give them a ride. You need to knock on your neighbor's door and say, can I help you? Not if they're a MAGA guy, because <laughs> they're probably loaded. But you know what I'm talking about. You got elderly neighbors that maybe aren't sure how they're going to get there. You need to look it up now, because they're doing a lot of redistricting. You know, your polling place may not be the same it was in 2020. They switched it up where I live. 
You may not be registered. You've got to check that registration now. There's resources for this all over Twitter. Google it. But get involved. Help out. Let's work as a team. Right? Let's do it. Do it for Prince. You know? Do it for us. Do it for your future. Vote now so somebody else's kid can have a brighter future. You know? This is, it's, this is go time. This isn't a dress rehearsal. This is the real deal. And we're the generation that's inheriting it. You know, all hands on deck, and we're going to be okay. All right, well, I think I went a little long. Normally, I'd give you my nature talk. I went for a walk by the river, and there's goldenrod by this river behind the property where I live, this beautiful goldenrod, and all these honeybees are out now because it's warmer than it should be, you know, and they're getting their last sort of gasp of summer. And, and you should see the way they buzz around these flowers. They do it with gratitude, like it's an unexpected pleasure and joy to have like this late in the season, this warm temps, right? But those pollinators, they're, they're what keeps the planet alive, you know? Without bumblebees and butterflies, we're all gone, right? So that vulnerable thing that you think doesn't matter matters more. And it's the same with people. So help each other out. We're all on the same side you know, ultimately. And don't let anybody divide you. And know that I love you folks. And I love all your comments. And I love the fact that you listen. And I've written up all this stuff that I'm going to put in a newsletter. I'll let you know when that comes out. Thanks again. Until next week, I'll see you then. This is the Noel Kassler Podcast, Episode 81. Peace. <laughs>